Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. I am Yevgeny Sverdlik, Editor-in-Chief at Data Center Knowledge. We have today with us Tim Hughes. He is Director of Strategy and Development at Stack Infrastructure. They're a wholesale data center provider. Tim, you're in Denver, right? So what's, tell us, what's it like in Denver nowadays? Is it cold? Is it, is it quiet because of the pandemic? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty much like everywhere else kind of quiet because of the pandemic. But, um, you know, we just got hit by the zero degree weather uh, over the weekend that I think found its way to a lot of the rest of the country. So we got to experience that over the weekend. And then I went outside and it was 25 degrees out. And I was like, man, this feels good. I should just put a T-shirt on like the, the, the relative difference between negative five and 25. You realize is a 30 degree swing. It's exciting stuff. Well, and and you have electricity, which is which is always nice. Totally, that was that's an interesting case study that's going to come out of that with, um, you know, how ERCOT manages uh, their grid because they do a lot of really good stuff, but um, clearly they they missed the mark on a couple of things. And you're, I think, you're my first podcast guest that has actual podcast recording equipment. Oh, that's um, good. You used to have your own podcast, right? What was that? What was that about? Yeah, that was um, ten years ago, and so I I can be forgiven. I hope for um, the, the the my attempt at comedy podcast. Um, I still think it was kind of funny, but uh, yeah, a buddy of mine uh, sat in my basement and recorded a I don't know a hundred hours worth of podcast content. And it's the the easy part is recording podcasts. The hard part is editing. And so like I'm gonna do my best to make a clean edit for you. So we don't have to go back and, you know, fix a bunch of stuff. So I'll make sure I, I mute all of my coffee drinking. <laughs> Here comes the coffee drinking. So we're good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. So um, we're going to talk about stack. We're going to talk about wholesale data centers. Uh, we're going to talk about hyperscale. Um, but uh, I want to talk about uh, your... I guess not previous job, but your past job. You spent uh, many years working at Facebook doing all things data center there. How did you end up at Facebook? Yeah, I, um, I started at Facebook in 2008. Um, I think it was November 5th. There was a presidential election the day before, so it kind of like stuck in my mind. Um, yeah, so I, I started there uh, pulling pallets and sweeping floors and racking and stacking. Um, anybody that has worked inside of the data center knows that's um, – that's, uh, some of the the manual labor associated with kind of building the internet um and a lot of the work that's that we were doing then is actually done kind of off-site in integration facilities now as as these facilities continue to scale up but i got brought in from a buddy of mine who um realized that i was working uh in a in a in a back room in a in a retail establishment a target actually overnights and he's like you know what data centers are kind of like this um, you know, you have to go around and, and manage things, organize things, deploy things. Uh, there's just a lot more software involved. And so he, he kind of reached out to me, gave me the opportunity uh, to start um, as a contractor um, in Facebook's uh, first data center on the East Coast um, in a DuPont Fabros facility, actually, um, ACC4, and um, worked my way up from there uh, through... Um, through, through kind of racking and stacking to configuring switches and provisioning servers. And I eventually became a, a program manager and deployed um, Facebook data centers and their, the Facebook Edge network and dark fiber um, facilities and uh, found my way onto the site selection team for Facebook and did uh, the, our, th their data centers in, um, in Denmark, in Ireland, and managed the, uh, the leasing portfolio for, for uh, a year, year and a half before 
heading out and um, taking a mini sabbatical and then starting my own consulting company before joining up with Stack about a year and a half ago. Wow, so, so from, from racking and stacking, from sweeping the floors to to the upper echelons for, of Facebook infrastructure uh-huh. strategy. Yeah, uh, the middle echelons, I think, is probably the right way of putting it. But, uh, you know, I got to work on a lot of really fun and, and big projects, um, which um, I'm, I'm really fortunate to. And you only get, I think, a couple of if you're fortunate, you get one opportunity to do that in your career where you're starting at a small company and you're actually able to influence large decisions and you have enough um you have enough uh, flexibility to actually um, push things in certain directions at a, at a company that's growing quickly. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have now two with, um, with stack infrastructure here, but um, that was a lot of, of fun. And to your point, you know, there's nothing, you, you can't really um, discount starting really at the bottom at, at, at the, 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 the absolute starting point of where you can learn everything that you can in an industry. And I was able to do that with data centers. Right, because because then because then you kind of once once you are and once you do move you know up the ranks you kind of know through and through everything that's going on. So you're when you're you know and you when you manage teams you you know what what kind of things they face day to day that must yeah. make things a lot easier. I think you can empathize with people as well too because you say to yourself, um, okay, we're going to site a data center in. Um, this really great location from a power cost perspective or from a tax incentives perspective, but it's it's in the middle of nowhere and that doesn't have a quality of life for people that would be living there. Um, or when you're making design decisions on facilities and you ask yourself, okay, um, very simple things like, um, how do we ensure that um, if you're in a, a facility like what we build, you know, how do we ensure that our clients have the best experience when they're coming in the door or receiving a package or taking the trash out? These are like very, um, minor seeming things when you're in the grand scheme of designing and are really important for the people that work there every single day. Um, and so you have to have, take, you get to kind of think from that perspective. Cause, cause you've been that person, you know, doing the shipping and, and receiving. I've taken, a, I orders. took, I took a lot of trash out. So, you know, I, I know it's nice to have the box, uh, the box trash can, uh, closer to, to the loading dock, you know, so you don't have to walk in, in the weather that we're experiencing on the East coast, you know, boxes still need to go to the recycling bin, uh, whether it's five degrees or 95 degrees out. Yeah. The, the fine details of the user experience. And, and so you went from, from site operations to site selection. Can you maybe tell us that story? Um, how did you end up on the site selection team? Yeah, so I took a kind of um, intermediary path through um, the technical program management team um, within the infrastructure organization at Facebook, which um, essentially is the, uh, at the time, and I believe still is to this day, uh, like one of the most cross-functional teams that you could deal with from a technology perspective in infrastructure. I think that's true at a lot of these organizations, um, large tech organizations. And so there was a very small team of us um, building a lot of infrastructure quickly, and you have to touch a lot of different pieces, everything from, um, you know, ensuring that you're deploying servers in edge nodes um, around the world to um, working with a very smart and talented software and production engineers to build the software stacks um, that support these things. And oftentimes you're doing stuff at, at a scale that hasn't been done before. And so both from a physical infrastructure perspective and a software perspective, you're, you're um, learning how those pieces fit together, um, serving a billion plus users that maybe others haven't done before. Um, 
And so I, I had a lot of insight into um, the cross-functional nature of the infrastructure organization. Um, and so the, the site selection team, my current boss, who's the chief strategy officer at Stack Infrastructure, a guy named Matt Vanderzanden, he reached out to me and said, hey, um, we want to um, increase our kind of cross-functional engagement with the rest of infrastructure and data center site selection um, because um, they felt like they were maybe getting a little bit too siloed um, and they wanted to say, hey, you know, we want to make sure that we're, we're, we're working with and collaborating with all stakeholders from a network perspective, from a software perspective, et cetera. And so he brought me on and I said, hey, look, this is something that I'm very passionate about. I'm very interested in um, deploying the largest scale um, pieces of uh, physical infrastructure that Facebook or other tech companies are working on. And um, I've always had a passion for um, acquisition and negotiation. And so um, I was able to kind of get my hands um, on that. And I was able to provide some kind of cross-functional um, uh, support to the team as well. That's interesting that you brought up uh, cross-functionality and how uh, these hyperscalers, they, I think they really value that, right? And, and that opens up opportunities when you're working in an organization like that, when it's not so um, siloed and segregated and, and there isn't like a rigid hierarchy. Um, there's a lot of yep. opportunity for people to move from one team to another and, and just yep. even see what if you see what other parts of the company are doing and, and uh yeah and at some point you know you get so big that you can't really do that but um i was able to grow kind of in lockstep with the organization um while they grew and i think a similar thing is happening at stack where we're i think we just passed a hundred employee milestone um, a week ago or some, 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 something like that. Um, and so we, we, we're seeing the same thing here, right? We're, we're building this organization and we're trying to, and we're, we're growing really quickly. And so my goal is to, to kind of grow and scale myself and our, um, strategy and development organization in kind of the exact same way. And, and the interesting thing is as these organizations get larger, um, there's just natural, um, additional, um, friction or inefficiencies as those as they grow larger, it's kind of just like the the multi-talker problem where you have instead of communicating one on one or one to two, you kind of have n times n minus one types of communication where your um, your your stakeholder group grows and grows. And so, if you're in those internal organizations, some of the best things that you can have is good external partners like a stack infrastructure that can be fast, that can be nimble. We're still small enough to make those quick decisions and respond to our clients. And that's certainly a little bit of a plug for our organization, but also just a reality having been on the other side of the table that you need that outlet of those um, nimble, fast partners that maybe are three to six months ahead of where you are um, to be able to um, to grow your organization and quickly, even if you do the majority of your data center uh, capacity self-perform. You can, you can outsource the uh, nimbleness element if you are so large already that uh, maybe you cannot be as nimble. That's interesting. Absolutely. And, um, so were you were you at Facebook when they launched the when they started building their first um, own data center, the one in Prineville, Oregon? Yeah, um, that effort started in late two thousand seven, early two thousand eight, um, and uh, I joined at the end of two thousand eight. So they had started some of the site selection efforts prior to me meeting there. And look, I was just a you know a guy racking servers, so I'm not going to take any credit for that. I know the people that, that worked on it, very smart people, some of them that are still there. Um, but I was there um, during the initial turnup um, of the facility. 
um, working with our uh, provisioning teams and our software engineering teams to uh, bring that facility online as a new region. And it created interesting problems from a from a software stack perspective um, because you're, you're we were at that point just two um, uh, regions, an East Coast and a West Coast region in Santa Clara and in Ashburn. And then they added this Prineville region. And so the question was, how do you um, best optimize the software stack for a new region that's also kind of on the West Coast, but far enough away that if it's not its own segregated region, then you would uh, create uh, latency issues. So that was a lot of interesting problems that other people um, were working on that I got to watch while I, um, you know, racked up uh, big uh, Cisco and Juniper switches and uh, routers and, um, you know, help to provision servers. And the stack infrastructure, you mentioned not not an old company. It was very recently formed in 2019. And it was formed by a combination of some T5 assets and the Informart assets that were left after Equinix uh, bought Informart Dallas. Uh, it was formed to go specifically, it was one of the kind of few companies that were formed to go specifically after the hyperscale data center outsourcing opportunity. Um, another interesting bit about stack is um one of its backers iconic capital i'm not sure if they're still involved but they were in the beginning uh and they're they're a wealth manager for some very rich silicon valley figures you know people like mark zuckerberg cheryl sandberg jack dorsey can you can you f maybe flesh out the business strategy a little bit i mean i kind of summarized it you know going after the hyperscale uh, opportunity um what's the strategy what are stacks different differentiators yeah sure so uh, the the while we were putting the company together um and i started a year and a half ago so i wasn't there kind of at the formation but um i've been able to continue to work with the folks that were um the the initial hypothesis is that um simplistically but importantly data center growth is going to continue um in the near medium and and long term um, and that growth is going to happen primarily at the um, larger scale side of the market, uh, to your point, the hyperscale side. And so um, we should work to we should develop a company that's um, specifically organized to to capture that. Um, so the the strategy was relatively straightforward, where we um, work to develop a national platform and saying, OK, instead of just starting with capital and dirt, which really anybody can do. Um, we wanted to create a, uh, co a cohesive nat national platform first um, on the back of performing assets, to your point, that were acquired through T5 or Infomart. And um, those assets have served us extremely well to kind of create this, this, this revenue base uh, for the company, as well as um, the ability to show that we can own and operate data centers. Uh, there's a lot of capital right now chasing um, data center development, as you well know. And um, anybody can say, hey, I have 100 acres and I have a lot of money, but we're showing to, we're, we were able to very quickly show that we had um, the organization and the talent to actually operate these data centers as well, because nobody wants just the data center. They want somebody that can uh, operate the data center well, and we're, we're doing that. And so once we established that platform, our next step was to um, begin to uh, develop new facilities. And so we did that in Chicago, Silicon Valley, Portland. Uh, we have some Northern Virginia projects going on as well. And so we're quickly deploying additional capital and building additional data centers um, for the clients that we now have 
um, very close relationships with from all of the hyperscale players. So it's it's it, it was a key component of ours to be able to prove that competency through operations, then to prove our ability to develop these facilities um, in a very um, um, uh, stack specialized design. Um, but not so bespoke that if a client came in and looked at it, they would be like, what, what is this? You know, I, I don't understand this mechanical system. I don't understand this electrical system. And in a way that's modular enough for folks to be able to make changes if they need to, and for us to scale up rapidly and um, from a cost-effective perspective. So that's, that's the strategy. Uh, create the platform, establish operational competency, um, to pr begin to develop our own projects in a way that with a product that... Um, our clients are interested in and then really develop that deep relationship with those clients and create that sense of us being the outsourced nimble partner that you're looking for. And um, hopefully we're in markets um, that uh, we're ahead of our, uh, even our clients from a schedule perspective that we can uh, quickly perform for them. As you, as you mentioned, there aren't that many kind of experienced teams that, you know, that aren't already working somewhere, uh, building data centers and leasing them to big clients um, in 2019. And, and now you guys are up uh, some serious competition. It's a very competitive market um, with some very experienced companies with long track record, like digital realties of the world and, you know, Cyrus One, QTS. When you're talking with, with the Microsoft or with the, with the Facebook, how do you explain to them, you know, why Stack and not digital realty? I can't give any client name specifics just because of NDAs, as I'm sure you're well aware. But those are just examples. Uh, of course, yeah. Um, and so we, um, yeah. I, look, I think we have the best team in the in the industry right now, and that's not trying to throw any shade at any of our competitors. And you would say, yeah, of course, naturally, Tim, you would say that because you work there. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't have joined this organization if I didn't think that we had some of the best folks in place. Um, and really, there's been a shift in the last three or four years. Um, from uh, the data center industry being a place in which it was very real estate focused to um, a place in which it's very um, much more driven by the finance side of things. Um, you see different types of capital entering into the data center space. Um, and that means that different players, individuals um, that are contributing to this space are enter entering it as well. Um, including a lot of the people that I, I work with. Um, and we have people that have been in the industry for 20 years. Um, and we have, I think, you know, our probably average time in the industry is 10 to 15 years. But in terms of the management and in terms of um, what these companies are expecting, these the, the competition for the digitals and the Cyrus is completely different from when they were developed, right? Um, and completely different from when... Uh, the problem sets are completely different from when they were started as a company as as companies as well not to pick on anybody in particular but they uh, but we are developing ourselves specifically for the the problems of today we don't have um 20 years worth of legacy assets that we have to manage and think through um, we are able to remain nimble and small and focus on the core customers that that um are at the top of our list and we're at the top of their list, we think too. And then we're able to hire really good people because we can keep the team smaller. Um, and so I think we have some of the best sales organizations, some of the best finance organization, um, some of the best engineering and design people um, in the industry right now. And a lot of our folks come from 
the hyperscalers themselves. You know, my background, my boss's background, um, I, I would say probably a good 50% of our organization have some sort of hyperscale background from one of the top four or five companies. I think that that's pretty unique. So we're not just coming from a real estate background or we're not just um, hopping over from uh, somebody else directly in the industry. We know what our customers and our clients are looking for. So we, we keep talking about hyperscale data centers. That word means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Some people look at it from a size perspective. Um, some people look at it from kind of the, the application that these data centers enable. Um, some people look at it from a design perspective. There's a certain way hyperscale data centers are designed. Uh, what's a hyperscale data center to you? How do you think about these things? I just look at it as scale. I mean, it's hard to look at it from an application perspective because many of these hyperscalers are cloud providers. And so um, what applications are they running? They're out running whatever applications their clients want to run. Um, and then if you look at it from a how it's being designed, I mean, there's a there's a hundred thousand different ways that you can design a data center. There's infinite ways you can design a data center. Um, and then there's, there's probably like 10 that are actually good, right. In terms of like what's out in the market right now, but that's going to change over the next five to 10 years. I mean, you have a bunch of different trends in electrical, um, topology design. You have a bunch of different trends in mechanical design, and those are all different from 10 or 15 years ago. And so really for me, it's just, it's just the scale at which you're deploying, um, and, or, or buying, um, and so that's why we view our clients as um, a, a lot of our clients as hyperscalers is because they're self-performing at very large scale and um, they're working with us to develop projects um, to at, at very large scale as well. And so for me, it's mostly just, um, you know, what pick an arbitrary line. I'm sure there's a way you could define it. Call it 12 megawatts, 24 megawatts, 50 megawatts, 100 megawatts. You know, that's 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 more of how I think about it is is in terms of the raw capacity of the uh, facility, well, not raw capacity. I would say a gross capacity after PUE of the facility. So five megawatts and up or something like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's pretty small still, honestly, these days. That's Nobody's, too small for, for I, I, Yeah, I mean, you have to, I mean, I think hyperscale is, is, the, is the place at which you can develop a facility and capture the economies of scale to be competitive in the market for what a hyperscale buyer is looking for. Um, you can you can certainly build smaller facilities and they make perfect sense for um, the air quotes retail side of things in which um, you know you have 2N plus one redundancy because it's network equipment or it's edge nodes and there's load balancers in there and you can't lose a rack otherwise you lose your uh, entire uh, application or website. Um, and so those things certainly exist for a very good reason and they will continue to exist and continue to grow. But what we're doing is more of kind of the core application um, uh, data center side of the world, right? And that's that's a place in which you have to deploy at scale to capture the economies of scale to be able to be competitive in the marketplace, whether it's against others that are in the same business model as you or against um, uh, the, the types of projects that your clients themselves would self-perform on. So 10 megawatts, what's the minimum um, cutoff? I would say, you? I would say, honestly, I would say 20 plus. 20 plus. Uh, in terms of the facility size, 
um, you know, and that, you start to you start to capture economies of scale there, um, both from uh, a construction perspective, which is very important. Um, and there's a number of inputs that go into construction, everything from the procurement of the raw materials to um, the earthworks that need to be done to um, your supply chain of critical components. And we have a very well-developed supply chain in which we spent the last year uh, putting that together, where we um, we work directly with our supplier partners, everything from generators to our air-cooled chillers to our PDUs uh, to our fan walls. And we worked with them to develop um, a scale relationship uh, that provides us with uh, economies of scale from a pricing perspective, but also I think even more importantly, um, the ability to uh, work with them to refine a delivery schedule through that supply chain that actually makes us more competitive from a schedule perspective for delivery than than others in the industry, um, as well as uh, self-perform from our clients. So we've been tracking this explosion of data center capacity for 10 years now at DCK about that. Um, it's accelerated in the last five or so. Where in the life cycle of the explosion are we today, do you think? Are we at the middle, the end, or still the beginning? Um, you know, the interesting thing about data is it, it's it's not constrained by any um, clear physical limitation. Um, I think if you look at other industries, um, oil and gas is a really easy one. I mean, you can always say, hey, there's going to be peak oil at some point. There's just so much. Maybe that's in 10 years. Maybe that's in 100 years. Um, maybe we've already hit it. But um, there's from a data perspective, whether it's processing, whether it's storage, um, there's not actually a clear thing to point at. So it's really hard to say where we are in, in, that, um, in that life cycle. And you know, I think as we continue to trend towards ever more uh, data-driven applications that continue to um, improve our lives most of the time, sometimes uh, distract us with, with uh, cat videos, um, it's not as, in, as improving. Um, that's, I think we're going to continue to have uh, a demand for, for data services, for data centers. Um, and I think you're going to see it in different types of flavors. But, you know, the current trend is, is um, certainly towards this uh, centralization of servers in, in the cloud. And as folks uh, centralize out of, uh, I think we're, there's some, that, some, some studies that say we're about 50% through that cloud transition. So if you're looking for a specific um, epic in this uh, ongoing life cycle, you can point at the cloud transition and say, okay, maybe we're about 50% through of the way through the cloud transition. And the reason that that's important is folks are transitioning their IT services out of closets, out of small data center deployments and into, into the cloud. And so at least from our perspective on the hyperscale end of the business, um, we see uh, that continued uh, movement into centralized cloud locations as a continued growth in the hyperscale uh, side of the industry. Uh, so that's say that's 50% through from from a from a cloud um, uh, aggregation perspective, but the other things that we're seeing that are not quite as easily tracked and and kind of confined, um, and and it's really hard to predict where this goes and where this ends is you know we continue to see increased client traffic, um, and clients are, importantly aren't just people but more and more people are getting on the internet. I mean we. We, they, there's there's some studies that show we're probably going to be about two thirds internet penetration globally in 2023, 
Um, three years, that's, that's about 5.3 billion people. Three years ago, we were at 3.9 billion people. And so that's a pretty significant increase just in human eyeballs. And then, you know, people use the buzzword IOT all the time, Internet of Things. But really, that, that is an increase in clients as non-human uh, interactions increase on the Internet, um, as our smart devices, as our cars, et cetera, um, connect. That's, that's as heavy from a data center perspective as, as human beings get on. So those are two significant trends that it's really hard to predict um, you know, when that, when that growth cycle is going to stop from a, just a new client perspective, um, when you add together both, both people getting online and, and devices. Okay. So, so the answer is basically, we don't know, but, but things are still, it's, it's still growing pretty, pretty quickly. 10 years will continue to have significant growth through this cycle. As, as more people come online, as more devices come online, as cloud uh, aggregation continues, as the complexity of the applications that we're online with continue to increase, and as people spend more time online, the next 10 years will certainly see continued growth. Beyond 10 years, I mean, it's hard to forecast anything, right? But um, I, I, would, I would expect it to continue to grow. And the question is, you know, are we seeing the same types of growth trends that we've been seeing over the last five years, or is it more of a stabilized, mature industry? Or or do is there more growth in some places around the world and less in others where a lot of capacity has already been built, right? Certainly. And I mean, you, you can point at technologies that are that are probably five to 10 years out and you just say that is just a wild card. I mean, if everybody got into VR and what we were doing um, right now with this podcast was a like a was a VR type of obsession. You're seeing stuff like that in the pandemics. You know, you're seeing virtual concerts that are attracting a lot of concurrent viewers. Um, and so, whether you're you're hanging out like watching a virtual rendition of Old Town Road, or you're like doing a podcast and then you do it live with with people uh, attending that way, you know, there's a, there's a potential for that to increase significant demand. And as that um, continues to grow, who knows? You know, that's, that's, a, that's a question mark that you could say, well, it could peter out as a trend. Um, you know, people might actually start valuing in-person interactions even more post-pandemic, or, you know, we could see ourselves being more um, and more virtualized because, hey, look, my house is comfortable. You know, I'd rather not put shoes on. Microsoft just announced a big new project in Atlanta from being on, on Facebook site selection strategy from, you know, in your current role also. You're always looking at different markets, examining them for their potential. How do you see the Atlanta market? Um, also, how does an entry of a large hyperscaler like Microsoft affect the wholesale provider market in the metro? Once a, a big hyperscaler has a new project in the market, uh, does that provide impetus for other developers to kind of enter to maybe provide services around that? I mean, I'll just start by saying, you know, we're, we're in the Atlanta market. Um, we have a facility that actually is, it's a, it's a, all of our facilities are great. This one's actually particularly interesting and, and, um, and, and a, a great facility. Um, and we have expansion capabilities in, in a couple of different positions in the market. So we, we certainly believe in Atlanta. Um, and I think the reason that you believe in Atlanta is because, you know, you look at the East coast and you ask yourself, well, where else is there, uh, besides Northern Virginia? And, um, you know, the, the, kind of New York, New Jersey market has been um, uh, plateaued for a little bit now um, in terms of additional development. And I think that has to do with a number of different factors in that market. Um, and so, you know, people have been pointing at it to Atlanta as 
um, the the kind of southeast uh, hub from a from a data center perspective, and we think that that's uh, we think that that's an accurate thesis. And partly because of all the connectivity there, right? There's some major carrier hotels there. Uh, lots of lots of fiber in the ground. Definitely. I mean, when we were deploying our edge network at Facebook, it was one of our top six markets in the United States. Um, so you had you had Northern Virginia, you had Northern California, you had Miami, uh, you had New York, you had Dallas, and Atlanta was probably right in there with L.A. and Seattle and Chicago. And so you had it's one it's certainly one of the con- the most connected cities in the country. Um, and it's important because, um, you know, it's really close to Florida, which has a lot of natural disaster risk. And um, Florida is a significant hub, not just for the southeast, but also for South America and um, and uh, Central America. And so there's a there's there's an important position for Atlanta from that perspective. Additionally, and very importantly, it's a large metro in and of itself with a lot of people and a lot of large companies. And so uh, typically, if, if folks are, are, are um, leasing space for their data centers, they want to be close to their headquarters unless there's a redundancy reason or a significant financial reason why they would want to do otherwise. Um, so Atlanta is definitely appealing from that perspective as well. Um, the question about the, uh, the impact of a, a large scale, a hyperscale or self-performing in a market is really interesting because you have... A, a wide range of outcomes depending on the market. I mean, you can look at um, a, a couple of markets in Iowa, for example, that have had significant developments um, from a hyperscaler perspective, and you're not seeing any movement um, from uh, from the rest of the industry in there. Um, you're st- you're seeing hyperscalers clustering there for sure, um, but you're not seeing the wholesalers uh, come in afterwards. Now, on the flip side, a place like New Albany, which um, until um, Facebook uh, did their site selection effort there and eventually chose it as one of their uh, U.S. facilities um, locations, it, 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 and that was, I think, seven years ago. Um, since then, it's grown significantly from a hyperscale perspective. I think essentially all of them are there at this point. Um, and you're also seeing movement from a wholesale perspective. We have a position there. There's a couple others in the market that are uh, are making moves. And I think that's more of a dynamic between New Albany is centrally located in the U.S. population zone, um, whereas Iowa is less centrally located from a U.S. population uh, per- positioning perspective. And so there's 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 definitely dynamics that you you see in these different markets that have a lot to do with things outside of just the hyperscalers entering. So a hyperscaler on its own, maybe not enough, but hyperscaler plus other factors in the market, maybe um, enough of a reason Absolutely. for a wholesaler to enter. I'm, I'm curious also about, um, so Microsoft, they've been you know really building out, um, the last few years they've been building out their data center, their new cloud regions with availability zones, which they, did, they didn't used to do that, they just, started to do that recently. And uh, so, you know, when they enter a new market, even if they are entering on their own, um, I feel like that should also provide opportunity for a company like Stack or, or anyone else that you guys are competing with to pitch to Microsoft. Do they use a mix of uh, build and lease in a market for the express purpose of of being able to to enter a market immediately with multiple availability zones. So you know you build your core campus on your own, and then you you know lease out the 
capacity for or your lease capacity for for to have multiple play uh multiple locations again not able to speak for any client in particular but what we're seeing in the uh, as a trend in all of the cloud players is this movement towards um th- these regional positionings with multiple availability zones uh in in the region and they all have different names for it um but essentially the 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 architecture is the same in which you have um say Northern Virginia as a region, and then you have a number of locations within Northern Virginia that you can deploy that um, are that follow pretty strict guidelines on physical separation and network diversity um, to allow for um, some pretty significant levels of redundancy in a given region. Um, so yeah, we're seeing that uh, in, in a number of markets um, for, uh, for, for all of the cloud players having interest in um, in, in creating the, the right level of that availability zone diversity. Um, and they, they, there are certainly markets in which they um, take a, an approach in which they will do self-perform on some of it, and then they will lease capacity on some of it. Um, that's certainly a, a dynamic that exists. Um, some markets, they just decide to lease it all. Some markets, they decide to uh, build everything themselves. And so um, really, I think what we want to do, a product that we want to create is um, that those, those, those cloud clients of ours um, can really just look at ours, our facilities as an extension of theirs. Like we build uh, high enough quality to their standards in an efficient enough manner um, that we can, uh, we can, they can look at us and say, oh, okay, do we want to self-perform, you know, 10 miles down the road, or do we want to self-perform, or do we want to lease um, at, at, a, at a, a property that um, a provider like Stack already has? And so that's, that's certainly something that we look at in markets and we say, okay, where are opportunities um, to, to collaborate with those cloud providers um, and ensure that, uh, you know, they, that we're working together? Um, to to develop uh, additional availability zones for for them. I mean, what you don't want to do is um, is create problems for your clients um, by uh, by you know trying to um, trying to. Uh, while we want to predict what our clients want to do, we want to have good enough relationships with them to say, okay, you want to develop here cool, we're going to develop here, cool, and like actually coordinate really closely as much as possible, as much as they can divulge to us, our development strategies in tandem with them. When you guys do decide which market to go into next, do you usually already know that one of your clients is going to want to be there or is there some element of risk in that decision? There's, there's normally an element of risk in the decision. I mean, these are um, companies that are in a very competitive industry that, um, that we have great relationships with, but uh, you know, we recognize that they're not going to be able to tell us everything and that's okay. I mean, I've, I've been on that side of the table um, and I always tried to bias towards as much transparency as possible and just say, Hey, look, I can't tell you any more than that. Um, but we just try to ask the questions and say, Hey, you know, these are markets that we're looking at that we think are very interesting, um, that we see potential for growth. Um, you know, can you give us any feedback on that? And, and oftentimes they'll give us as much as they, they can. And then um, beyond that, we have to certainly take on additional risk. You, you know, there's, there's very rarely a case in which somebody's saying, hey, go there and, you know, we'll, we'll lease that space out for you. That's just not really where the market is. Um, they have uh, a lot of options. Um, in, in most of these markets. And so we have to be on top of our game and create a product both from, you know, what it is we're building, but where we're positioning in every single market at any given time, our, our efforts and our capital uh, so that we can, um, we can, 
we can hopefully uh, uh, have an opportunity to work with them in, in any market that we're entering in. They, they try to keep that information pretty close to the chest. And you mentioned this for competitive reasons. What does one hyperscaler gain by keeping their plans to enter a certain market with the data center campus uh, competitively? Well, I think there's two different things going on. One is you, you work at a company like that, you have to be very sensitive to everything that you say at any given time. I mean, there are so many different stakeholders involved in any of these decisions. Um, especially local stakeholders that you're working with uh, really closely oftentimes to to put these uh, these these dreams into reality from a new data center campus perspective and so you never want to until you know you don't want to commit to something um, because there's a lot of decision making that that happens with these and you you want to make sure that you are um, you are really honest and straightforward about what it is that you're you're going to be able to accomplish and what you can commit to at any given time. And then when you can commit, you can go in. And so just booking it from that side of the equation, um, you know, these are very large companies that are in the spotlight. Hundreds of thousands of articles in a month, I'm sure, um, get printed about all of these companies. And so they they need to be thoughtful about the decisions that they're making and the commitments that they're making uh, at any given time, just in general. And then in terms of, you know, working with us and um, competing in the cloud space, for example, I think there's, 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 they, let's take us out of the equation and just look at what they're trying to do. Um, they have a lot of clients in these markets, oftentimes that are saying, hey, you know, can you um, deploy additional capacity or can you deploy a new availability zone or can you um, come to this uh, city or this market? And so they're working with their own clients to 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 meet their needs. And so again, they can't they can't overcommit to any of them. And so even from a secrecy and competitive nature perspective, they need to make sure that they're able to um, commit to their clients what they can actually accomplish. And then finally, from a competitive perspective, um, you know, I think that there's what we've seen over the last couple of years, especially is as um, the cloud uh, landscape has become increasingly competitive you see um, a uh, differentiation in service to proximity. And so the closer that folks can get to, to their clients and deploy to their clients, um, the, that's a differentiator for them as their cloud services. And so that's kind of some of their secret sauce. And so they wanna keep that, I think, as closely guarded in terms of where they're going until they um, actually have a firm commitment and make an announcement. And then for us, look, I mean, we're there, we're, we're there to provide services, but, and that's an important piece of it, but um, they have a lot of other factors to it. So, so if, there's, if there's a market with lots of potential cloud users, um, if I am Amazon and I can build a data center there quickly or ahead of others, I have an advantage uh, in, in, gaining, in getting those users to to use my services because just because just because the performance is going to be better for them. Yeah, or or they just um, folks just want to be closer to the infrastructure that they're deploying, um, or um, perhaps there's local guidelines or regulations that they have to be in compliance with uh, that requires that proximity. And speaking of proximity, you were involved in in Facebook's edge computing strategy or edge network. Um, can you tell us a little bit how how they go about building out their edge network? I can paint a pretty broad picture sure. of what, what them or any of these folks are trying to achieve, which is um, the, the interesting dynamic that I think uh, is, is hard to pick up on is that um, proximity is important, certainly, but physical proximity to a user is only as useful as the interconnection point 
um, the proximity of the interconnection point to that user um, and to the, the data center that that user is trying to connect to. Interconnection point between a last mile network and your infrastructure? Um, let's, I'll, gi I'll give you an example. And I, I mentioned Miami earlier as a very important Latin American hub. That's, that's shifted. But um, 10 years ago, um, I, I think the majority of um, LATAM traffic, South American traffic certainly, um, was exchanged in Miami. Um, and that's changed as, um, ex as uh, facilities and exchanges have been built um, in South America, and that, that region continues to flourish from an internet perspective. But um, at the time, um, you could build a data center that served the application um, in um, Argentina, for example. Um, but the, the Argentinian carriers oftentimes would be exchanging traffic with you uh, in Miami. And so you building a, a core data center closer to the physical user um, actually would punish that user because you would have to connect in Miami and then send the traffic back down to South America to perform whatever uh, um, per per perform whatever that data center was supposed to be performing for that user. So that's an interesting dynamic where um, you have to be close to where traffic is exchanged. You don't have to be close to where um, the human is that is uh, creating that traffic exchange in the first place. Again, you see this countless times in all sorts of places. I think Europe is another example. Uh, the flap, you know, Frankfurt, London, Amsterdam, Paris, which gets a lot of press these days. Ten years ago, it wasn't as much, but um, you would have questions around, okay, well, how do we better serve a place like Poland? And it's, well, actually, to deploy more capacity in Frankfurt. Uh, counterintuitively, going to Warsaw wouldn't actually help most Polish users. That is, again, is, that dynamic has changed. But at the time, the majority of Polish traffic was being exchanged in Frankfurt. And so building more capacity closer to Frankfurt would be better for that end user than building capacity in Poland. Because you can reach, so, you can reach more networks of various providers in Frankfurt than you can in Warsaw, right? Yeah, and there's a really a physical component to it as well. Like, let's say... Um, Let's say you're you're a Polish uh, carrier, and you uh, have for the last twenty years been exchanging traffic with the majority of the um, content networks in Frankfurt, and so you've built up all of your infrastructure in Frankfurt, and you've built up all of your fiber backhaul from your various uh, cell towers going to your aggregation points to Frankfurt. Uh, that's where you exchange traffic, and then let's say one of those content providers comes and says hey, we want to actually exchange traffic with you in Warsaw. Well, as a carrier, now you have to build out capacity to that Warsaw location. You have to take all of your aggregation points and backhaul it through fiber to that. And maybe you only had a one gig uh, connection. That's not a connection that really people use anymore. But let's just say you only had a one gig connection in Warsaw and you had 100 gigs of capacity in Frankfurt. Now you're having to build... 100 gigs of capacity in Frankfurt. And so from a capital deployment perspective, a lot of times for carriers, you want to lean on your legacy infrastructure on where you've been deploying it. And so it's less about where does a content provider want to go or a cloud provider want to go and more about where can a cloud slash content provider work in tandem with an internet service provider to find the best place to exchange traffic and serve that traffic from a data center. So what does that mean for decisions by someone like Facebook? Um, about where to put their, you know, edge computing nodes versus, you know, their core facilities. 
yeah, you, you primarily look for where you can exchange traffic most efficiently. And that's looking at um, three things, typically. One is, where is the internet exchange? Because the inter internet exchanges around the world have a ton of traffic flowing through them, and they're extremely valuable because they're a centralized point where you can plug in, whether you're a content provider, a cloud provider, an ISP, or just somebody that's kind of kicking it from you know the 90s version of the internet, and you can exchange traffic on the internet. Um, so you, you figure out where those IXs are, and then you say, okay, cool, where are the other, um, beyond the IX, where are the primary peers that you want to connect to? You know, where are those large ISPs? Um, what facilities are they in? Um, are they in multiple facilities? How much capacity do they have in those facilities? And then you're also looking for where um, you can interconnect with um, any of the other folks that uh, need to connect through uh, kind of paid carriers. And so you can have your... Um, you're not you're not just exchanging traffic with your Polish ISP, but you're also exchanging traffic with ISPs behind that ISP, right? Because not everybody, especially the smaller folks, can um, make it all the way to Frankfurt. So oftentimes they'll kind of pull their resources and 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 aggregate their their traffic, and you can connect to them through what's typically called a transit provider, which is a third party intermediary between you and um, other content providers or ISPs. Okay, so, so optimizing kind of the, the peering infrastructure, the traffic infrastructure. That's all the, all the hype that's been around, that, that's been happening around edge computing in the last couple of years. This is a different kind of edge. So the edge is, is actually um, a lowercase e edge. It's simplistically defined as the point in the network in which you're interconnecting with somebody else. And so um, if you, a content provider or a cloud provider has an edge with an ISP that's typically in one of these exchange points, right? Let's say in Frankfurt. Now that ISP also has an edge with their client. Um, so you kind of have where they're exchanging traffic as one side of their edge, right? Where they're exchanging traffic with a cloud provider or a content provider. The other side of their network has another edge where they're actually connecting with their clients, their paying customers. That is the edge that's currently being talked about where people are trying to optimize very hyper-localized services for that. And that's a very difficult problem because it's so disaggregated that um, you have to be very specific in the applications that you're trying to optimize at that point. Uh, otherwise, you don't have the right scale to actually properly optimize it, and you can actually create problems for your clients. And um, I want to go back to the hyperscale build versus lease question. So why don't hyperscalers, you know, they obviously have, you know, the best teams, the best designers, the best uh, operations teams. They have very smart people working um, on their data centers that build these state-of-the-art facilities, super efficient. Why don't they just do it all on their own? Why don't they just build their own data centers everywhere instead of leasing? Yeah, I think there's there's two primary reasons um, that they're, they're leasing right now. Um, one is relatively straightforward and intuitive to, to folks in the industry, which is um, there are some places that you want to deploy capacity as, as a hyperscaler um, where you don't have the scale 
um, from a, the demand side from your application or from the cloud that you're building there that you actually want to self-perform and build your own facility. And so oftentimes these are in international markets or these are in um, traffic exchange points um, where it just doesn't make sense to self-perform. And so you're going to, you're going to lease in those places because, you know, you're not, you're not passing the threshold to what we talked about earlier in which you're able to actually capture the economies of scale of deploying your own facility. Additionally, if you start trying to build and deploy in every single one of those locations, you are stretching your team very thin, um, but from an operations perspective, from a design perspective, from an engineering perspective. And so you want to work with partners in those locations for those instances. And that's a, that's a pretty significant portion of the demand, especially as, um, the, uh, the proximity wars that competitive, competitive, um, aspect of the cloud, um, industry right now in which folks are trying to get closer and closer to their clients as that continues to, to mature. Um, so that's one piece of the puzzle. The other is oftentimes um, the, the leased facilities are really um, a release valve, um, I guess pun intended, for uh, capacity requirements that weren't necessarily predicted. Um, the, the, the development and deployment cycles for data centers are very long. Um, typically, you're seeing anything from, you know, starting the project to coming online, um, 18, 24 months. Um, people say 12 months. Um, they're kind of shaving some stuff off on the, on the front end and on the back end of that to, to make that 12 months um, look good on a schedule. But it's typically 18 to 24 months. And so, you know, physical building development, uh, the procurement of energy, um, mobilizing large construction crews to get this done, working with local stakeholders to ensure that you have everything that you need from a permitting perspective, that's a lot of work and a lot of time. And so if you are predicting your demand 18 to 24 months on a rolling cycle out into the future, sometimes you're going to miss low. And oftentimes that's where we're filling that gap where folks are saying, hey, you know what? We have this demand cycle that is kind of on these, on this weekly increment or even daily increment, because especially from a cloud perspective, you can deploy software pretty much instantaneously on the cloud. And so if you and I came up with this killer podcast app that a billion people decided to use tomorrow and we deployed it on one of the large cloud providers, um, they would need to spin up additional capacity for that. And it's possible that they would need actually additional physical capacity to do so. Um, if that's the case, then they might not have that 18 to 24 months of luxury to, to deploy additional data center capacity, which means that uh, stack infrastructure can step in and say, hey, you know, we have 200 acres in Manassas, um, and we have plenty of capacity available there, and we have a bunch of electrical interconnection capacity as well. And by the way, we've already graded the pad. We can be up in you know six to nine months, and then folks are interested. And so you're oftentimes, as a partner, filling the gap for, for um, the demand predictions that sometimes fall short in the industry. So it, it helps kind of soften the unpredictability, the unpredictable nature of their demand. So they, so they don't have to, they don't have to, so they take a smaller risk by going into a location. Yeah, I think it's less about them taking a smaller risk and more about them saying, hey, look, um, here are our, um, here are our various uh, model predictions for demand over the next 24 months, uh, 60 months, uh, you know, whatever window they're looking into. Um, and 
you know, here's the 10 percentile view of that. And here's the 90 percentile view of that. And they kind of cut off the ends just because you start to see some really wonky stuff. But they have some very smart data scientists putting together models. And they say, hey, here's the 10, here's the 90. You know, from a capital allocation perspective, perhaps we should develop to the 60, uh, which gives us, a, you know, maybe a little bit of buffer. But that the difference between the 60 and the 90 can be a pretty significant amount of capacity. And so what they'll do is intelligently continue, continuously refresh that model and feedback with their teams cross-functionally to that point earlier that are actually deploying and uh, procuring and deploying these data centers. And if for some reason that does spike to a 90 and it does so in a very small period of time, they don't have the ability to respond to that as rapidly as they probably want to and self-perform to that. And so it's, it's all about modeling and it's all about um, trying to predict the future as accurately as possible and you're never going to get it 100 percent right and so the question is are you over are you under um, is it within your buffer is it outside of your buffer and how do you um, address the the gap okay tim that's all i have thank you so much for your time man absolutely thanks this has been a lot of fun